Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today we have a, another full house. Uh, I'm joined by several leading figures from the world of cyber to discuss remediation of cyber and the time it takes to respond to attacks. Uh, before we delve into the topic, uh, let's make around the room with a bit of introductions. So, uh, Paul, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Paul Baird. I'm the Chief Technical Security Officer for Qualys. Thanks, Paul. And Darren? I'm Darren Desmond. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for the AA Group. Um, covering all of our product lines in the UK. Yeah. James? Hi, I'm James Blake, and I am the head of cyber resiliency strategy at Cohesity. James, Suk? Hi, everyone. I'm Suk Paul, and I am director of EMEA Go to Market uh, on all our services at Kodowski Security. Thanks, uh, finally, Eva. Hi all, Ivan Milenkovic, until recently Group CISO for WebHelp. Uh, now, effectively a student, um, advisor, and a few more things. Happy to talk about it some other time. <laughs> Thanks. And now, a word from our sponsor, Qualys. But who are Qualys? Qualys is recognized as an industry pioneer and a premium provider of cutting-edge cloud-based security compliance and IT solutions backed by a global subscriber base exceeding 10,000 customers. Qualys is incredibly proud to be supporting Evolution Podcasts. Together we are dedicated to addressing the prevalent challenges in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. Qualys assists organizations in consolidating and automating their security and compliance solutions onto a unified platform, resulting in enhanced agility, improved business outcomes, and a significant cost reduction. Utilizing a single agent, the Qualys Cloud Platform delivers continuous critical security intelligence and remediation with comprehensive coverage extending across on-premise, endpoints, servers, public and private cloud, containers and mobile devices, ensuring robust security across a diverse environment. For more information, please visit Qualys.com and see for yourself how Qualys can have your business manage and reduce your cyber risk at speed, at scale, and in a quantifiable way. Okay, so now we're all introduced, uh, let's move on to the topic. So you've all got a question or statement on the remediation of cyber, and as usual, I'll work around the room, asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. I'll uh, give each of you an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So uh, we'll uh, kick things off. Darren, do you want to go for yours? Yeah, sure. So. Um... I didn't have to think too long and hard about this because I've been fortunate enough, and I will use that term fortunate, uh, to be involved in several um, security events over my career where I've had to respond to them and and perform the investigation and the incident response. And the, the most pressing topic is always around, you know, do we know what we've got? What do we know about our asset um, inventory? So my question really is asset management and monitoring linking directly to an organization's ability to respond to all compromised systems. How important is that statement and how mature should an organization be before they can get comfortable with their ability to respond? Thanks, Darren. Uh, Paul, can you kick us off? When I work for an asset management company, it's going to be an easy one for me. Um, it, we forget about asset management. Uh, I've been in the industry before I joined a, a vendor. I've been on the other side of the fence for 23 years and asset management was never the, the shiny solution that we used to run after because it wasn't exciting. You know, we went after EDRs and seams and firewalls and everything else. And it's not until three o'clock Sunday morning when you get hit 
and you're wondering who owns that asset, what the business criticality of that asset is, what's the risk of that asset, can I take it off? Can I just reload it? What, what can I do with it? And that's when you realize how important asset management is to an organization. The problem is, is who owns asset inventory? Because there's uh, cybersecurity never want to own it. Um, and rightly so, to be fair, I think they should have a copy or even their own solution that, that, that has the information that they need. And that feeds back into the corporate CMDB, whoever owns it. But I think asset inventory and asset management is the unsung hero of cybersecurity, personally. Um, I, I said I've done a fair few events, um, sadly, um, where I've not had a clue what to do with the 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 asset that's been compromised, and I've just had to flip a coin, which you should never be put in that state, especially some of the organisations I work for that um, you know they turn over thirty two billion a year, so one mistake, you know, we looked at three hundred and sixty million a day on average if systems went down. It's a lot of money to be flipping a coin, so. Uh, yeah, unsung hero for me, and I still don't think many organizations treat it with the respect it should do. Well, Ivan? Couldn't agree more, uh, Paul and uh, Darren. Fantastic question. Uh, it's one of those where, again, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I've been in, uh, in that position a few times. And, uh, you know, sometimes you go through uh, very silly uh, discussions with, uh, with your colleagues, you know, uh, along the lines of we we thought that thing was supposed to be switched off years ago uh go figure uh you know i i guess it is a challenging problem uh challenging especially if you are in a big and dynamic environment uh even worse if that environment's grown you know through acquisitions and stuff like that that's where things typically get either forgotten or overlooked or uh, again, as I said, it was supposed to be switched off long time ago kind of scenario. Uh, and typically what happens is you don't have the right tooling there. Nobody knows anything about it. But back to Darren's point and, and what you mentioned, Paul, as well, uh, ownership is so important. And I think this is one thing where we as in InfoSec professionals really need to drive that message very, very hard. Business ownership, technical ownership and visibility visibility and visibility that's that's the king really so yeah in my books it is one of the very very high priority ones so uh, again fantastic question there and james yeah i mean it's the reason it's the first section in almost every single cybersecurity framework that that exists and it's the foundation that we we never get right and as you say a lot of you uh, it's down to ownership right <clears throat> and um, us perhaps not articulating the value um, of knowing those assets. And I think we, we kind of had a missed opportunity, um, you know, when we started to push to things like hypervisors, and then we started to now push to cloud. There's an awful lot of orchestration and telemetry where it, we can capture details about those assets at the point of instantiation, but we don't because we often don't talk to IT. Um, so, you know, and my question, I'll, I'll cover this more later, um, around our dysfunctional relationship often with IT. So I think we kind of missed the trick there. Doesn't help that an awful lot of organization are lifting and shifting on-prem and then not taking advantage of that telemetry and orchestration and just dropping it in the cloud. 
Um, but like you, I've rolled many IR incidents and as much time is spent finding out what has been impacted. And when we consider now, even if we do have asset inventories, they tend to be of hardware and software, which is largely commodity. Right, the things I care about is the third party libraries I'm using within that software from software composition analysis perspective, but I also care about the data much more. Right, and that normally isn't in um, in the uh, CMDB repositories. What is the regulatory obligations of that data? What state are they in? How many records are there? Uh, because it's the data that targets the adversaries target. It's the data that runs the business. And it's the data that has the regulatory impact. Don't really care about hardware and software as much as I care about where the data is. Excellent. Yeah, you know, a great question. And I think it really takes you to the tactical aspect of the, the remediation part. Um, so in my role, I've done, um, I guess, wargaming scenarios where you're simulating an attack for a client to understand how well prepared they are. And I think James made a good point there on, on his question, which we'll go into. But, the, I've also had the opportunity to kind of play a, a crisis management role when there's a live um, incident and we're working with a client to basically get them what contained initially and then get them back back online safely. So in terms of the the asset aspect, um, that's when you're from what, what I've experienced, your supply chain and your key stakeholders, how are they uh, geared up to support you in those your know, dark hours? post uh, incident that that's when it really becomes critical uh so asset knowing the asset is one thing but um to the point paul made in terms of who actually can do what with that asset so because the who owns the management of that uh, from a change management point of view that's always been a key component of this the time it takes to to remediate and, and get back online so the the asset inventory aspect is a is is a one, it's a one on one, but still the, the best and brightest organizations out there still are not up to speed with what they have in house, especially when it comes to their um their supply chain and the way all of our services are interconnected. So it's definitely something that needs more focus and you see how much focus it needs, unfortunately, on the other side, when you're trying to fix things and get things back online. Yeah, just just to pull some of those points together, really. So um, as, as um, James mentioned, the, the infrastructure and the application, the individual applications, really, it doesn't matter if they go down. If, if you're fully resilient, it's not going to mean a jot of difference to your organization. The data point is very interesting because I was going to say earlier, you know, who is the business clear on who owns the data? Is it the business or is it IT? Well, some organisations don't know and they just assume IT owns it. And the IT owns, sorry, assume the business owns it. So no clarification around that. Um, and what I've done in the past is I've tried to map important business journeys, particularly with the FCA's focus on resilience now and other regulated industries as well. We try to map important business journeys. If an application or piece of infrastructure gets, gets compromised, then as long as we contain the blast radius of that, um, that event, it doesn't really matter. We just flatten the, the device try and understand you know, how the attacker got in, remediate that particular vulnerability and redeploy the device. Um, and that's, if you're fully resilient as an organization, that's the way it should work because you shouldn't let, as, as, put, as uh, sorry, as James um, referenced, a commodity asset bring your business down or bring an important business journey to a halt. Um, we, we, these days, we really have no excuse to be built that way. Thanks, Aaron. Okay. 
people. We have some stuff. Uh, something's right. Well, you're on mute. Edit. <laughs> there we go. Edit. Yeah. Um, we're focusing on the asset. Um, the other things that we should be considering as well um, is uh, our software bill and materials with Logful Shell that highlighted that. So we're understanding what is on that asset, but also things like um, end of support and end of life. Um, they get us uh, all the time, especially end of support software. Um, if we don't have visibility of that, it can come up very quickly. And the example that I use when I'm speaking to people is certificates. We generally only know, and we're very poor at certificate management, when the certificate actually expires and we're getting that error message um, when we're trying to browse a page. And I think it's the same for end of life and end of support software as well. We need that visibility so we're not firefighting all the time as being a little bit more understanding of the um the environment that we're in so we could potentially fixing problems before they actually happen yeah I, yeah i getting rid of fragile artifacts is is your number one resiliency goal like it's when people won't let you vulnerability scan a box because you might trip it up you're kind of like huh? <laughs> and that's running your business critical um functions uh but the attackers will do that for free for you though right exactly i worked as an expert witness on a case where the asset inventory of the attacker was better than the cmdb so the um the organization subpoenaed a copy of the evidence so they could rebuild their cmdb from what the attacker had done some of the evidence that the um the actual agency was presenting on that case which made me laugh um but uh, one thing i just want to add to this is you know because i'm going to talk more about this later obviously the space i work in now is largely wiper and ransomware right that's where um, most of the attacks i'm looking at rather than traditional data exfiltration events and the thing that makes me laugh there is people think that, you know, with NIS2 coming out, you know, in your 72 hours and the SEC requirement to notify, uh, clearly written by people that have never rolled incident response, right? It's uh, the first thing I'd say. Um, but the second thing is people who think they can do it retrospectively, like how much data was impacted on the system that's just been encrypted or wiped? how are you going to find that out right if you haven't built a cmdb you're not going to be able to do it so i'm finding a lot of people are using old workflows that they designed for traditional exfiltration events and they're just not using the right workflows for um you know the new kind of world we live in with ransomware and wiper attacks and let's face it we're all yeah, we're all working for Western organizations and wiper attacks are a real, real big threat to us uh, if we work anywhere near critical infrastructure. So. Thanks, James. Okay, so uh, Paul, so I'll come to you for your question. Um, a nice short one. Um, so we're talking about how long it takes to respond to attack and remediation. So my question's around what KPI should we be tracking with regards to remediation and response? And I'm going to tag something slightly on the end here is how do we do augment, sorry, audience segmentation to make sure that the right people are getting the right KPIs? Cool. Ivan, come to you first. So it's not necessarily a long question. However, it is a, a rather long and complex answer behind it, and I'll try to contain myself. Uh, in, in my last place, we approached that, uh, I guess, from, from a rather academic 
point of view. So we created a catalog, internal InfoSec catalog of any and all KPIs, first and foremost, that we could think of, you know, even, even remotely usable stuff. Then we had a very big exercise to actually understand which ones we could actually track because you have sometimes, well, sometimes quite frequently those potentially very useful KPIs that you don't stand the chance of measuring actually, realistically. And again, we, we went on and on and on. But by the way, we started with something like almost 250 KPIs. And by the way, I'm absolutely not recommending to people doing something like that, you know, trying to to capture and measure and, and, and propagate that to all the stakeholders and so on. My point being is it was a painful exercise to establish, as I said, first and foremost, what can realistically and reliably be measured. Then in theory, who owns each and every one, because also people frequently fall for, you know, there's, an KP, there's a KPI of sorts, there's a number behind it, and, and you just fly with it without trying to understand actually who in the business owns that very KPI or who can heavily influence that API. And ultimately, as, as you said, Paul, uh, you know, which KPIs are suitable for which audiences. So we had a very nicely tiered set of KPIs that, uh, again, some of those were obviously for the kind of board level reporting, some were uh, for particular teams, you know, looking at apps, looking at, uh, you know, IT as a whole, network, and so on and so on. Some actually quite, quite a few very relevant to our cyber resilience area. And uh, again, uh, my uh, long story short here is, you need to try and understand your business and then put KPIs against that because everybody will talk about the same stuff, you know, mean time to detect, to resolve, to contain, to this and to that and whatnot. Yeah, fantastic stuff. What does that mean for you? However, as well, you will have KPIs that might have a very, very different context in different parts of your business. You know, for one department, a KPI can be okay. For the other, it can be a lifeline, obviously sticking to the to the right things. So what what I would suggest here is I'm, I'm not going to put myself on the line and say, you know, these are the five KPIs you must measure and, and have and whatnot. Again, much, much, much longer discussion. What I am going to say is understand your business, understand your stakeholders, and ultimately put those things in a context. And don't fall for, I must do something with this particular one, so I must have it up there. No, if you can't, as I said, reliably measure that one, if you can't really put some context and if you cannot track those over time, don't even bother unless you improve the underpinning so that you know you, you are in the right position to be able to do it. Darren, come to you. Um, yeah, so I think building slightly on Ivan's point, the, um, the challenge I've run into in the past is trying to generate metrics which I don't currently have access to, and that can be really painful. So I guess the message is, you know, identify what you can measure reliably, try and put it in the context of your security objectives to the organization and be clear to the leadership team what it is you're telling them when you present them to them. So in, in the similar way that Ivan described earlier, the way I've done it um, in, the, in the past and, and more recently 
is I've generated a basic data set. It wasn't as many as 250. It was about 25. Uh, and then I tailor those outputs to my audience, but I put, push them out there in Power BI dashboards. So uh, the recipient of the, whichever dashboard um, it is, they just receive a link. They can go into the live data and then see the metric that they're interested in. But um, for me, I report monthly to an executive risk committee at the moment. I give them the top sort of nine things that I'm worried about and I know they're concerned about and I want them to be concerned about and they change so very you know without giving away anything sensitive obviously very recently we went green on my top nine um, KPIs so we're now looking at the next the next ones the ambers and the reds that um, have popped up more recently as a result of testing and I guess allied to this conversation is is, is being clear about what your current focus is an organization you know if, you, if you're a big organization with a big security budget and you can apply lots of remediation programs to solve lots of uh, holistic security problems and great um, you need you need to eat the whole pie at once but i think in many organizations they have to tackle the crocodile closest to the boat they have to be clear about what outcomes they're trying to achieve and who owns the risk if those outcomes aren't achieved and i think once you get to that point where you have a clear risk appetite um, set by your leadership team they understand who owns the risk how it's going to be managed or mitigated and what they need to get to to achieve that then it's, it becomes much easier to define what those kpis are i think without that clear expectation on risk appetite it's a very um it's a very nuanced conversation because as a security leader you're trying to um, get to a particular position um, or maybe even trying to get a particular certification in place you know which you're trying to work towards be it NIST csf or iso 27001 whatever it may be and trying to demonstrate some evidence because of those uh, drivers um, other parts of the business will be trying to get rid of legacy assets uh, legacy applications or infrastructure so it depends, again, we talked about this last time, it very much depends on what your uh, overall security objective is. You can shape the metrics and the, the KPIs to, to whatever uh, you're trying to achieve, of course, because there are lies, damn lies and statistics. But um, I think just being very clear with your leadership team and what, what you're going to give them, what that actually means for them. You know, I, I started reporting on um, uh, externally facing RDP sessions some time ago. And, you know, the exec were like, well, why on earth would it, what, what is that for a start? I've no idea what it is and why would I be interested in it? And, and they should be interested in it because if those, if those are, any of their systems are exposed to the internet by RDP, then it's a bit of a problem as we all know. So it's, it's being very clear on the context, I think, um, is, is the, the primary activity you have to undertake before you can get to a clear KPI. Thanks, so. Yeah, I think I think it's quite a difficult thing to gauge. Um, just listening to the the the, the conversation here, um, every time you you want to report on a KPI, you need to have a baseline to be able to at least uh, reflect on it in terms of what the improvement is. Is it a a detraction or are you improving on that? So, and and a lot of clients that I've spoken to, while I haven't been able to access, and keen to hear what. Um, Darren and maybe Ivan have experienced here is when when an incident, depending on the severity that's taken place, how much of that are you able to measure? Because at the time you're really um, all hands to the pump and trying to get everything back online or, or protect or limit the amount of, of damage. But is there, for me, I think unless you have a, a timeline of or time series of, okay, over the last six months we had X incidents and of those incidents, this is how we measured ourselves in terms of um, containment. Um, and to Ivan's point, you know, you can do mean time to whichever letter you want to put at the end of that. But how only once I think you've got a baseline of that, can you start to say, yes, 
here's what we're typically measuring ourselves on every time something like this happens. The second thing is ensuring that the organization, so not just IT or, or the security folk, but across the business, there's some level of acceptance of what those KPIs are to say, right, yeah, we understand what the KPIs represent. Um, and we we also are able to, they're tangible for us in terms of the outcomes that are coming out of the remediation. I think only then can you truly see what those KPIs are doing for you as a business. And I think you're tapping into resiliency as, as a result of that, because then you're starting to show over time, all the technology, the tooling you've invested in, the programs you've ran, you're starting to see an improvement in resilience, which you can demonstrate through your KPIs. Indeed, uh, spot on, Paul. Uh, I actually wanted to um, reference uh, a very nice uh, study, let's call it like that, that I stumbled upon first time last year at a large conference organized by a very large um, analyst organization that we're not going to name in this call, but those are the guys that came up with quadrants so people can draw their own conclusions. They actually uh, came up with a very, very nice study, as I said, uh, putting together some properly business relevant KPIs. And, and again, uh, I'm, I'm not going to try and run the risk of uh, you know, saying something that, that might have commercial implications for people. Uh, but um, it is something that actually I, I think has plenty of value and mileage and, and something that people should, if they can, uh, tap into and, and take a look at. Because um, they came up with a set of KPIs that are very tightly connected to the actual business side, business outcomes and so on. But on a plus side, and, and Paul, what you mentioned there actually prodded me, uh, they are providing the baseline across the specific uh, verticals. Um, so it is very easy for you to understand, you know, from the moment you start measuring, from the moment you have a number, it is rather easy to compare yourself with your peers on one end. On the other, uh, actually, you have some very nice material from them that can uh, explain uh, to various stakeholders what, what these actually mean going to, to your points, Darren. Uh, I, I fully appreciate that you know, you're addressing them uh, in a particular order. And once you actually uh, sort out a bunch, you go on to the next and so on. I might be a bit old school uh, in a way that uh, my approach has always been slightly different because I, I don't like trying to confuse senior execs and my, my point there is when you get them familiar with something you stick to it not because you're going to you know start showing green for for time to come but ultimately because at any given point in time you'll be able to, to actually, actually you know go back and tell them where you stand and what's going on and they will be able to track this but that's why it's so important to find the right set of KPIs that they understand, but that are going to stay relevant for a very long time. And that's where the science is, I guess. That's that's what the biggest challenge is, because we have too many of these good KPIs that we can share around you know, technical circles and that you can discuss to the nth degree with, with technical peers. But unfortunately, that, that many senior execs are simply not going to understand unless you, of course, explain them that RDP stands for Ransomware Deployment Protocol. In that case, I think they will get your RDP one easily. Exactly. Darren, here's your hand up. 
Yeah, I guess um, for me, so I've worked in quite operational environments over the years as well. And it's um, so they are, it's quite important for me to change those um, KPIs regularly where you are seeing a cluster of incidents and the, and the root cause analysis indicates it's the, you know, it's a similar problem that's causing or leading to the incidents. So for me, it's quite important to have a, a, a set of KPIs, KRIs, whatever you want to call them, that they're aligned to risk regardless for us. So, um, you know, that, that are re representative of the current threat landscape for the organisation. So that, that leads on to you need to understand your threat landscape, what it means for your organisation or industry. You also need to understand your asset inventory, otherwise you don't know what's exposed and what you need to protect. And so for me, it's very much a moving feast. I think, you know, the, the, key, the, the, um, the key metrics we've we've been using recently, we've been using for a little while now, we've been focused on those metrics very much because um, we are driving uh, our security control environment in a particular direction. So in, in order to maintain um, governance really, an interest at the exact level around specific project outcomes, we've been reporting on those uh, controls and their efficiency, which has been quite good and it's certainly done the job. It's got people talking about the right um, elements of security at a very senior level and, it's, and going back to your point Ivan, representing that information in a consistent way month after month after month is very important because they can become familiar with it. They look at a dashboard that you know is the same shape and size of, as the previous one they've seen perhaps for 15 months on the bounce and they understand what's coming. The metrics might be different themselves but the format is similar, they get it and that for me is probably the most important lesson I've learned in the last five years around presenting at this sort of level is to make sure you do have a consistent approach to it and even if the metrics do change just make sure there's a story that you can pull through and maybe even it links to some of the other uh, previously presented metrics it becomes a much um it presents a much richer picture then for the uh, for the executive and James yeah so so um I've had the worst well I can't say that because this is going out publicly I've had some some executives that are kind of hard to please so uh, ultimately, um, uh, Jamie Dimon um, was the recipient of some of the metrics I came because I used to run uh, cyber risk for corporate and investment bank business unit at JP Morgan. And if there's anyone who's got five nanoseconds of time to look at a report, it's that gentleman, right? Um, I think, it, I, you know, what you said earlier, Darren, about uh, the scale of the organization that does have some impact on the kind of metrics that that you create so obviously the level of the taxonomy and depth and the amount of metrics i could collect at jp morgan were much greater than i could collect when i was a CISO at mimecast right because we we're a smaller organization but we were a CICD organization so i had plenty of raw material right whereas in the larger organizations i almost had to implement some form of gates in processes to be able to do those measurements and um you know so when i used to build socks the first thing i'd always do is look at what i can measure but it's like um when people are trying to build playbooks what they always do is they ask the vendor what's can you give me a playbook no because they're different depending on your tooling depending on your structure of your organization depending on you know and uh so really the first part is measuring actually what you're doing and then measuring the effectiveness and efficiency of what you're doing and then taking the bits that are effective but inefficient and then automating those you know um but leaving enough agility to be able to to adapt so i've always been very metrics driven i don't give those metrics to the senior management and going back to ivan and, and darren's point earlier I always put them in business context. So Robert's sick and tired of hearing this. But, you know, first thing I do as a CISO is 
I build a CRM and I put all my stakeholders in it and I put what their daughter's names are, their son's names, what they do as hobbies, when their birthdays are, when their wives are, how they're measured, like every single thing that they're measured. And then every deliverable I have, I adjust and customize for every single person. So every single one of those stakeholders gets a different PowerPoint for me, or at least one slide on a PowerPoint about how their mission is delivered by what I'm doing. And metrics are a key part of that, right? Giving them a dashboard that's in the context of things that are interested to them. So legal counsel are interested in our liability, right? So giving them a dashboard where my metrics only contribute towards liability exposure. And then we have another one where, you know, obviously ops are interested in downtime. But what's the total cyber downtime caused by vulnerability patching, right, versus risk of exposure based on threat intelligence of keeping those uh, vulnerabilities in place? And this is to go to Darren's point earlier, how you motivate and get those senior managers on board. And it's usually when I can loop around and get that level under the CEO or even the executive board all on side, all of a sudden I've got a, you know, a, a tidal wave of support to do what I do. And it's very difficult to, to not get those buy-in from um, senior, uh, senior managers. And I mean, the core of what I use is NIST cybersecurity framework because it maps to every framework as an informative reference. But I use defend and attack to go back to, I think Ivan said it earlier, where with defend, I know what my controls do. With attack, I know what adversaries are doing uh, against service providers. So I can show that coverage. I can show the risk exposure. And then I can start to put a dollar price on the minute of every one of my analysts, the value of my controls, I mean, I couple that with a semi-quantitative model, like a risk distribution, doing something like FAIR or Doug, if you ever read the book, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, Doug Hubbard's kind of semi-quantitative method there. It all kind of comes together. And we've, we've never been in a better place with taxonomies to be able to produce real risk um, metrics that we can give the business. As long as we make the context to un Ivan's point, uh, take the time to understand the context and deliver it in a way that's meaningful and hide everything else right so we want to see the proof points give it to them but don't don't say we could have had 40 million attacks last week because someone scanned our firewall so thank you James. And that, Paul? Um, I, I think the panelists have, have pretty much um, said it. I would add just a couple of points. Sue mentioned about baselining. Um, I've seen a lot of remediation or KPI programs fail because they haven't based it on trended data. A lot of people take a, a, a moment in time as their, their, their starting point, and, and that's setting you up to fail. Um, and the other one that Ivan was mentioning um, is just try and avoid the question, so what can we monitor? Because I think everybody's touched on it, is you can monitor just about anything, but is it worthwhile to the business and your program? Ask yourself a set of success criteria, what are you trying to achieve with a, these KPIs? Um, and the last point is, I think most of the panelists have mentioned KPIs going up to the board, but we've got to remember there is other audiences within organizations, so they do go left, right, and down as well. So things like the mean time to communicate, um, fantastic 
KPI that never gets really mentioned. Um, but that could prove whether or not your IT's ITSM tool is working or not. If IT are doing their job finding, sorry, cybersecurity are doing their job finding a vulnerability, then passing it off to IT or service delivery to fix. Um, so there could be a lag point there as well. Um, so yeah, that's the just the other thing is KPIs are not just for board, they're, they're for the whole organization. Okay, so we'll come to James for your question then, please. So obviously I spend a lot of my time dealing with ransomware and wiper attacks. That, that's largely uh, what I'm doing. What I'm finding, and I alluded to it earlier, uh, is the fact that both parts of the organization that are involved in response and recovery from ransomware have huge amounts of misconception. So if I go back to my time um, when we were rolling incident responses, Saudi Aramco, there, there was an assumption that security tooling would be in place in order to do response. No, nothing, no SIM, no, um, you know, no incident response tooling, everything was flattened. And then even getting into the building, right? Your telephones are down, voice over IP. So how do you communicate with the regulators and law enforcement? So what? how do you communicate with the press? The press can't get hold of you. So what they do is they look on LinkedIn, who works for you? You can't communicate with the people that work with you. So they're all speculating then talking to the press. It's just a horror story, right? And so, you know, cyber incident responders assume everything's going to be there and they assume they can forensically image a white box. That's good. And then at the same time, you've then got the IT side of the business go, right, ransomware is just like flood fire. Uh, everything else, we're just going to recover the last backup. You know, that's been dwelled in for either days, months, weeks, has all the vulnerabilities that got you attacked in the first place artifacts and persistence mechanisms of the attack and doesn't have the controls that should have stopped the attack the first time. So, you know, how do we solve that problem? How do we get these two teams working together? And how do we get people to understand that ransomware and wiper attacks are not like data exfiltration attacks? Different impacts, different ways that we react to them. James? Paul, um, there is a saying that I can't say about assumptions are, um, I think most of you will know how to finish that off. Um, IT and cybersecurity have never played well together. Um, it's, it's just a fact of life, unfortunately. Um, so I think sometimes there's that million dollar question and us as leaders um, need to bridge that gap between the two teams. And sometimes it's the CIO um, that sits across those two. Um, there needs to be an understanding between both teams of what is um, what are their capabilities right now um, and what are the capabilities are needed to respond to a wiper. I've, I've been unfortunate at that end where air-gapped backups, if there's such a thing, um, no longer exist because the, the threat actor had got to them. Flatten the systems, the business continuity manuals were updated 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, if, if some parts were lucky, um, and just watched the organization starting to crumble around itself um, because they never thought that they would be in a situation where they would lose key systems and backups and not being able to fall back onto um, paper as well. So I, I don't think there is a one size fits all answer to this question about how we we start to get these 
these two teams working together. But I think as leaders, we sh should understand that, especially when we're coming into an organization, that there are going to be issues. Don't just rely on business continuity, but it is a good place to start. I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, but even having a look at what business continuity has been um, designed and how long ago is, is certainly a good start of the 10. I'd love to hear what other people have to think on this one. Thanks, Mark. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think sometimes in our world, um, the taxonomy we use in, especially in the infosec part of the organizations, it can be, a bit alienating and as a result i think people don't understand necessarily the severity or the um the impact when a, when an attack takes place um and I, I like uh james's question where you know he highlights the fact that um it just see it as another outage and i think a significant difference um on on the two is with an attack it's exactly that it's personal there's intent behind it whereas an outage uh, to a service could be a number of reasons, misconfiguration, something in your supply chain, et cetera. So from a planning point of view and kind of going back to that um, scenario planning and, and doing simulations, the more you can involve broader parts of the organization in understanding the terms of reference, you know, what typically needs to happen or, or, or how teams need to work together when an attack uh, or an incident takes place. I think that then over time, not straight away, but over time can start to become somewhat second nature. And I think, as Paul said, the two the two organizations do have different ways of uh, approaching some of these issues um, when it comes to an incident. But the more I think you can plan and prepare in advance, bring other parts of the organization into the plan. Um, I know um, Ivan mentioned um, an analyst firm that's kind of talking about, um, and I've seen this with our clients as well, services are being more decentralized into business units where they're kind of owning a lot of the development work themselves. So they're also then, um, I think from a, a security point of view, there's the question of helping those business units and educating them on how to uh, ensure that certain controls are um, governed and made sure that they, they're carried out rather than doing it through a centralized model. So in the same way, if you've got more of that taking place, teams will start to become more familiar with how controls are supposed to be protecting the organization. But at the same time, when remediation comes into play, it's not just, oh, it's that team over there that knows how to deal with the incident. There's some level of common understanding of how to do that. And then you obviously brings in, bring in the subject matter experts on, on particular tasks. But I think I think that's where you can start to bridge some of these uh, these gaps. Thanks, yeah, you. Uh, again, one of those fantastic questions, uh, and uh, we will discuss, I guess, as, as a follow-up through my question as well. But uh, Paul, to kind of, uh, rather James, to, to answer the exam question, how do we educate them? Well, the, the only, in my experience, the only real answer is test, test, and test. And what I mean by that is, uh, again, you know, you can think you're prepared, you can think you have the best playbooks in the world, you can think that, you know, you can account for all scenarios and whatnot, but all of these need to be tested and people actually need to, to rehearse them. And the best way, again, in my experience, is to at least once bring someone impartial, someone from the outside that's going to run these scenarios so that everybody around the table can actually understand and you know there's no way out and they can't wiggle 
they, if need be, need to be put on a spot and provide responses as to how they're going to handle certain things. And, you know, as, as you uh, mentioned uh, at the beginning as part of your question, effectively, you know, what if telephones are down? What if you don't have any other means to communicate? What if you don't have means to actually enter the site because you're relying on a piece of technology that, uh, that is down as, as part of the problem? Uh, I can I can think of so many other scenarios uh, again that uh, that really drive this. So it's so important to to really get that message to people and to get them to understand that everything they know or at least that they think they know, they need to forget and almost start from scratch. And everybody needs to come together for this. Uh, we mentioned quite a few times here uh, InfoSec or cyber functions uh, sitting effectively against the IT function. And then, you know, in some organizations, you have uh, really complex structures with various app teams and these teams and that teams and network and business side and, and whatnot everybody's got their place and everybody needs to bring the, the right knowledge to the table and again these processes need really to be tailored for the particular organization for the particular operational environment and whatnot otherwise you know you, you absolutely cannot copy paste and this is something that i i after all these years, people are still not getting, but it is so important. But again, that's why I'm saying bring someone external when you're starting to get into this external in a way that they can be seen, obviously, as the authority. So you don't get that, oh, yeah, you're an InfoSec guy, I'm not going to listen to you because, of course, you know, you, you're going to say you know everything best. And then you can start getting that message out properly once people realize that actually it's not that simple at all. Thanks, you know. Darren, um, I guess I would add to, I would agree with everything that's been said first and foremost, but the, what I would add to that is around key person dependency. And this, this links back to resiliency. You know, we were talking about that earlier. And if you're a sufficiently sized organization, um, it shouldn't, it should be less of a problem because ideally when you're doing your desktop exercises, your cybersecurity training, whatever it may be, you run through a scenario, you know, the, the, the CISO, for example, or the InfoSec team shouldn't be the first person they call. They should reach for a playbook that has you know, a set of procedures that is understood by everybody that people can follow, that's you know, legible for, for the particular intended audience. But also, you don't want to be going to the same person every time because they're, you know, they're, they're an individual that's able to fix stuff on the fly. They've got really deep and broad knowledge of the systems. And I, I, could, I could give you five examples about an organization I've worked in recently. You have a particular individual who is you know, fantastic for the organization. They add hundreds of tons of value to the organization. But, you know, the minute they're sick or they're off work is typically when something's going to go horribly wrong. All of a sudden you haven't got that person available. Or, you know, just as bad when you've got somebody you rely on for this type of work, they get burnt out in the first three days because typically this is a 24-7 you know, activity, you have to run around the clock. You can't just rely on that one person. So if you're a sufficiently sized organization, you've got depth and breadth in terms of your ability to respond. Fantastic. Make sure you rotate your teams through, but practice that in reality. Make sure it works. Make sure you have a roster that um, you know is, is real world. Make sure you have an on-call person that is able to pick up a phone and, and triage an incident early on and determine whether it does need um, you know, a security team uh, input from, from the initial point or whether it's a more BAU type response. Um, somebody who can you know, put, the, put their hands on the, uh, the telephone number, the 
uh, the IR team that you're employing, whether it's internal or external, so you can pick up the phone to the SOC. If you don't have that structure in place, then you're really missing the trick. Uh, but key person dependency, it's a, it's a you know, it's a, a big point of failure for a lot of organisations, particularly the smaller ones that don't really have a sufficiently sized security team. Yeah. You mind? You got your hand up? Yeah, someone uh, Darren mentioned actually uh, reminded me. Uh, that's a that's a fantastic point, Darren. Uh, I, I read some time ago. Uh, that many organizations depend on that hero culture to, to keep them running. The problem is you burn your heroes very, very quickly and then you fail. Uh, and, and it's not a sustainable model. So, uh, yeah, spot on. And, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to, to chime in on that one. Uh, it's a big one that people really should, uh, should take a note of. Yeah, heroes, heroes don't scale. That's what they, they always say. So, um, I mean, I just want to pick one point up there. I, I was really surprised, Darren, you didn't bring up the PRA or DORA, right? Because you mentioned earlier around the operational resiliency requirements. And I think that is getting at least certain vertical markets, financial services especially, to, to look at overall operational resiliency with cyber being a big part of it. So building, you know, how many anti-malware tools have we seen that we've been shilled over 20 years that have just done a global copy and replace of malware and put ransomware in there, right? And we've never had a malware incident, have we? You know, and, and the reality is the only difference between a ransomware and a, um, and, and, uh, a normal data exfiltration event is MITRE attack tactic 14, right? Impact. It's just got an extra one tacked on the end. Everything else to get in your organization, persistence, moving around, exfiltration, all are from the same, um, you know, the same playbook. But uh, the one thing I just wanted to say about what you said, Ivan, the problem is most external people have never experienced the ransomware attack and are very academic, right? I can't tell you the amount of organizations I've gone into and they roll out on their boardroom desk this like 20 meter long crisis management plan with 21 swim lanes and I get to box three and go, that won't work, you know, based on the experience of having done it. And that means everything beyond that is completely in invalid. I think a lot of people uh, and it goes back to what was mentioned around assessing capabilities in the metric ones, think they're a lot better than they actually are. Um, and that's the unfortunate thing when we get rolled in, is people have these this artificial expectation of their resilience, and it's not really where it thinks it is. It might have been validated by an ex-accounting firm, um, but, uh, you know, it, it's not really there. Yeah, I just want to tell you a tale of woe, really. I, I did some work a while ago now, and, um, you know, the, the, the team that I was talking to told me they had great backup process in place and all that. Well, when I did some digging, the backup for the application was actually on the server that the application was on. They didn't understand why that was a problem. And I think, you know, I've come across that several times in, you know, not, not a very long career, really, but um, it just seemed to be more common than not. And I don't, I don't understand why they think that's resilient against even a standard malware attack, let alone a ransomware or wiper type attack. So it's very, very, very odd practice. But a lot of uh, application owners seem to think that's okay. Very odd. Thanks, Darren. Okay, good stuff. Uh, right, I will move on to yourself for your question, please. Indeed. So I love the fact that we almost answered my question, you know, through through those discussions. 
but I'll, I'll start with the cheeky part uh, of the question. So does your CEO have your phone number stored in his phone uh, when the crisis starts? And, and the reason I'm you know, uh, putting it like that is uh, it's almost everything that we discussed. People don't realize that the actual corporate address book might not be up. So if you don't have it stored, now it's not going to work because you're not going to have the right phone number. Also, again, this isn't really only about CEOs and CISOs. It's about a very broad range of stakeholders that needs to be involved when the crisis kicks off. So do you know who you need? Do you know how to reach them? Do you know who to reach to instead if the right person's not there or if they are, you know, midair somewhere uh, and or are they, you know, maybe off work or whatever? So it is a very sensitive ecosystem to put it like that. So uh, again, trying to, uh, to to really articulate the question, do you have all of your stakeholders with the right mindset and uh, with the right way to, to contact them? Yeah. James, come to you. Yeah, I mean, it's my own question. So, <laughs> you know, I think I'll give my, my, my answer out there. It's, um, I think organizations need to build a specific program. And, um, you know, Ivan and Darren mentioned it earlier. You need to make those difficult decisions in advance. You need a ransomware policy with what is defined as ransomware? What are the permitted action and who's authorized to do it? Because every second is further spread within the organization. Um, I think most organizations who think they're going to pay the ransom. So I have one hospital, hilarious. Um, I'll be really quick with this story. Uh, the insurance company rolled an IR team in there. It was great, right? And we were supporting the IR team remotely, um, helping them. And and we were like, what are you, what are you looking for? And the, the insurance company had put an IR team in there that weren't there to manage the incident. They were there looking for forensic evidence that the customer didn't have the controls that they stated they had when they took insurance out so that they didn't have to pay the ransom. Right? They weren't actually helping the customer recover their data. They were just looking for evidence that on the attestations, the stuff wasn't there. And luckily, the customer rolled um, Cisco Talus other incident responders are available um, to go and um, deal with that incident. And it was only then that they, you know, they started clean rooming everything and, and recovering into the clean room because the insurance IR company had got them to recover 15 times and Reich just went straight back in because there's a persistence mechanism on the AD server. Um, and so, you know, we've You've got to be, you've got to do this properly. You've got to drill this properly. Proper processes, proper technology, and everyone who's going to be on that team has to drill it. Like your PR person needs to have the right things to say and understand the context of ransomware. You can't just give them a script and expect them to answer complex questions from the tech press without being prepared. Uh, and, you know, it, I just don't see that. Um, in, in some of the big FTSE and Fortune 100 orgs I'm working with, I just don't see it. Yes. Yeah, I guess, um, so I've run um, these desktop exercises in the past where we've also involved like red team as part of the exercise. We've had great buy-in from the exec, um, you know, and it's we're by no means perfect, but we've had great buy-in from the exec and great engagement from them. And we've run a ransomware exercise and uh, the CEO has not called me into the room. Well, that's not a bad thing, right? That's a good thing. That's what I'm aiming for. Because I want I want him and his 
um, the rest of the C-suite to know who to go to and in what order. There's no use bringing me into the room, really. They, they need to know which system's been impacted, you know, who's going to turn it off, where they need to turn it off, what tertiary and, uh, and other systems are going to be impacted. That's what they need to do first to keep the business going. So the processes that you know we built around that were pretty robust, pretty clear, pretty easy to understand for a non-technical audience. And that's really um, what organizations need to focus on. So we talked about this earlier, you know, where you've written a playbook and it's hugely complex or it's been downloaded from the internet, it's got no real context to the organization. There's no understanding of the business objective, let alone security objective um, that's, that's um, born out of that process. So, um, you know, when, when you're looking at whether the CEO should have your number in his phone, it absolutely should have, but only to invite you to, you know, formal functions and events, not to a ransomware attack or a, um, some sort of a response to an incident. Because if, again, if you're fortunate enough to be in a larger organization, you should have well-defined roles, whether it's in-sourced or outsourced, it doesn't matter, but it should be well-defined roles with a call tree who the right people can pick the phone up. And really and truly, you should only be going to the CEO to ask them to make a decision, critical decision. You know, typically we operate a gold, silver, bronze approach to crisis management, and each tier of that response to a crisis should be a decision-making point. It's the only reason you should really be escalating to those groups. Again, it won't apply to small organisations necessarily, but the concept can be applied in broad terms. So that that would be my take on it. Yeah, I think the CEO, uh, the role of the CEO, um, it's always evident how much they've been involved with. Um, I guess awareness and planning um, by the reaction they have typically when an incident takes place. Um, what, what, what we've tried to do, especially on simulations, we, we did one with a client and it was actually their steer cog, so essentially their board. Um, and we, we simulated the attack where the CEO was actually not available. So the the authority was delegated to the CFO in this instance. And what you what's really interesting is from a personality and a perspective of the business point of view, you see the type of decision making that starts to, to happen where you're simulating that an operation has totally come offline. The CFO straight away is looking at the outage cost, uh, so loss of revenue, operations, etc. You then simulate um, what are you going to do from a comms point of view to your people, uh, and and what we try and do there is apply the time pressure, right? So five to ten minutes max to make a decision. If no decision or a half decision is made, you can start to show things like you know a leak on Twitter of you know someone talking about the attack. You start to show regulatory pressure, media pressure, and I think this is where you you. Whilst there could be, in theory, a, a solid plan in place, they've got a crisis manager assigned. When you really try to, and obviously this is a simulation, but when you try, you apply the time pressure, you start to see how comfortable people are in making decisions and how well a team can actually work together. Um, and that's obviously where where leadership makes a big difference. So. Um, it, it, yes, the CEO is probably going to be reporting the results to the board, but I think Ivan said it earlier, if someone's airborne, they're not there to, to, to represent the organisation. You've got to have resiliency in place amongst the C-suite to be able to take charge and, and, and you know, get the, get the organisation to the right place. Yeah. Cool. I, sorry, I was just going to say on that, I love that. That's, we, we've done a similar thing. What I tried to do is take from the 24 ransomware incidents I've, I've worked on, 
I've now merged them all into one scenario against the donut company. And we basically give people different, because uh, they're franchised. So you've got all the supply chain liability issues and things like that. So, but what we do is we give everyone each other's role. So you give the CIO the, the CISO's role, the CISO the CEO's role, and you give them a Dungeons and Dragons player card. You are motivated by this. This is your personality. And then you get them to walk through a scenario where the non-player characters are all videoed. And then what happens is they have to make a decision at the end of every scenario. And you go, two minutes, you've got to make a decision. And you see them arguing, right? Because this is the kind of decisions you've got to make in a hurry when you haven't prepared in advance. And we actually put Apple Watches on the first time we did it. And we watched everyone's heart rate like go through the roof. And then when you get to the final one, which is, do you pay the, the ransom or not? Sanctioned entity, CEO is going to jail for 10 years if they pay the ransom. Like everyone is like, pay the ransom. We don't care about him and things like that. And you go, I run this company and he's banging his hands on that. And that's the kind of reality of what happens, right? And and you're absolutely uh, right. So that's what we need. That's the ransomware simulation, right? That is the kind of thing we need. Not this kind of thing, well, you know, it, 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 your EDR will fix it. Yeah, if your EDR isn't flattened, right? All the dwell time isn't longer than the retention period of your EDR's logs, right? And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> love it. I'd love to see yours. Yeah, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Thanks, <laughs> Jen. And Paul, come to you. Um, I think everybody's um, said it. I, I, a couple of caveats to, to Darren's comment. I 100% agree with what he said with regards to the CEO, but just based on the size of the organization, we're assuming these are, you know, eight figure, nine figure companies. There are a lot of other companies that go through the pain of a, a ransomware attack that don't have the luxury of having massive teams uh, on site. With regards to James's point, I couldn't agree with him more about role reversal. So I work for a global organization and uh, we threw the board into the IBM X truck. And I'm sure there is other scenario based uh, organizations out there. And it was fantastic to watch them just um, just just self implode. Um, it was it was th these people are, you know, very senior, very experienced execs that have gone through some hard times before, but throw them into a cyber incident and it, it just all goes to pot. And the particular incident here was a cyber incident. They were looking at trying to recover, trying to deal with media. Um, but there was this poor person trapped in a lift that actually through the scenario had died. Because they were focusing on things like getting the media right, getting you know the message right, getting systems up and running, and they just completely forgot about the potential of loss of life. So I think you know going through those scenarios that James mentioned is an absolute eye opener for execs that have never experienced this. And the last thing I wanted to put on, and nobody's mentioned it yet, is commander's intent. It's a very very powerful message, and if people that are listening to this haven't heard it, just do a quick Google. It basically gives some form of direction based on uh, an incident. So it means if your CEO, CFO, CISO isn't available, people are not running around like headless chickens. There's still some direction that can be given. 
when people were in the office, um, I always made sure that we had an external company that hosted um, a phone line. And on that card, when you used to have your pass to go in the building, it said if we were in the middle of a, a bronze, silver, gold incident, how many times and when we should phone into that number. So it means that if your teams went down, your mail went down, you still had an ability to, to speak to people. And, and having that pre-done before an incident um, is is it's going to save a lot of time and a lot of headache. You know, anything else for Zerada, even on that one? No, I think we, we covered it through and through some fantastic takeaway points. Fantastic stuff. Okay, well, finally, we'll come to you, Suk, for your question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, on, when, you, um, when you're dealing with the blast radius um, and you're trying to understand the level of damage, you, you look at the, you know, what infrastructure has been infected, um, uh, exploited, etc. One of the things I've seen, um, it's I've seen it a few times. That's why I'm asking the question is when you're looking to rebuild these servers or infected uh, machines, etc. In a lot of organizations and verticals, a lot of the accountability of this infrastructure is with an IT partner, uh, your outsource partner, whoever it may be. The time sensitive information you need on what operating systems are these things running on, um, what what you know what service packs are on there, or even the things like um, you, you know your backup servers, etc., AD environment. Having that information, having your partner with you 24 by 7 at this point is critical uh, as you're trying to restore confidence, get things. Uh, protected and safe. So, you know, in, 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 I'd be keen to understand from the panel's point of view, what role do you think your IT partner should or could play? Uh, and maybe you've seen things in the in your experience where you, you've seen either a really positive or or, or the other way around um, outcome of, of what that partner is doing for you in terms of giving you information to patch, remediate and get things back online. Sure. Darren, come to you. Oh gosh, I think this is one of those awful it depends answers. So sorry about that. But um, I'll, I'll talk um, from my own experience currently. So we we um, we run a number of different major IT partners, and they all they all play very different roles in the organisation. But I guess, and again, this, this isn't specifically talk about my organisation now. But it all comes down to how your contracts worded, because quite often I think if you if you have an outsourced IT provider and they're they're delivering a you know holistic management of your systems and the security of those systems and maintenance, the whole life maintenance, the asset management piece should ideally be included in that contract. Experience tells me that's not always the case, or if it is included in the contract, it's not specific enough to deal with a destructive ransomware event, for example. And so I guess, you know, this this um, question goes a bit deeper than just dealing with the incident itself. It's how you set the contract up. It's what the specifics are in the contract around recovery from incidents, specifically ransomware incidents or destructive malware incidents. And it's the level of service they provide after that. As I, mean, I alluded to earlier, a ransomware incident can, can run for days, if not weeks. You very quickly burn your local teams out. You will also burn their teams out if, you, if they're supporting you and your response to the attack. So, so for me, it would start very much at the, the choice of partner through you know, the due diligence you perform on that supplier. Uh, the contractual requirements and, and the uh, clauses built in around security and recovery from attack, as well as the, the support post-attack. Yeah, yeah, and I mean the important thing to remember is most people don't read just small print. Look at Microsoft 0365. There's no resiliency in that at all. There's no backup, right? So, so on the amount of best efforts I've seen, yeah, who go, mm. oh, I'll just look in Office 365. Yeah, but if your tenants wiped out as a part of the attack. 
right? Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I've got to say about that really is, is people aren't involving them in the planning and testing, right? That's the big thing. You'll get a contract that says you can do it in three, four hours. Try it, test it. Make sure your contract allows you once a year to test that they can give you the piece of information you're looking for within four hours and then ask for a system back to be recovered back to a previous state at a point in time and see if they can do it. That's the only way you can validate it. I think the question is super relevant because the complexity we're dealing with these days is just mind-boggling. The other day, I was I was actually in a car with friends, uh, sort of listening in on, on, on his phone call, and I was absolutely mesmerized by, by sheer amount of third parties involved when it comes to their environment, you know, with one party being strictly responsible for the hardware layer, and then another being strictly responsible for the OS layer, and then another being strictly responsible for the application layer on top. And then you start sprinkling some cloud and this and that, and, and it becomes absolutely impossible to manage. So I think uh, the, the problem is really very, very serious. And it's something as, as uh, James suggested, you know, it, it needs to be firmly baked into the contracts. It's something that needs to be tested, obviously, and everybody really needs to push those contract boundaries to the max. People need to understand what they're dealing with. Uh, again, uh, it is uh, fortunately or unfortunately uh, an era where you know we, we just can't walk away from all of those dependencies. And I am absolutely not kidding myself. Uh, We're probably going to uh, see even more of that stuff going forward with new technologies and you know everything that's happening. Uh, people do need to have a very, very serious internal discussions because frequently, you know, what IT see from their end and how they manage their cost and what they think brings, you know, various optimizations uh, just from from an infosec perspective can be a, a completely upside down picture so uh, i think the, the the role for you know any it partners huge but it will be only as good as again as suggested what is outlined in the contract uh, what sort of commitment you can get from a third party uh, how much of a partnership it is and i think that's something that's frequently overlooked because we still talk a lot about, you know, vendors and suppliers and this and that. Actually, those are the terms that I don't like. I only ever like to deal with partners and that really should have the weight behind the word. So, uh, yeah, a co complex problem that can only, only, only be addressed through exercises, testing, testing and testing, as I mentioned. And ultimately, you need to have the right contractual coverage. Okay, and finally, I'll come to you, Paul. Um, I'll be quick here. Uh, for me, it's relationships. Um, having a relationship with your partner, having a relationship with your vendor is cre uh, critical when the world is burning around you. Um, Darren mentioned it, contracts. Um, there's nothing worse than phoning up uh, a partner or vendor and then flicking through the contract uh, before they can step in and help you. And it's happened to me a number of times. Whereas if you have that relationship with a partner and a vendor, and it's not the you hear from them once a year or once every three years when the renewal time, those are never going to go anywhere. Whereas if you can pick up the phone, 
you're in a world of hurt and you need some help and they will stand up the services knowing that you'll come true with a PO or whatever it might be at renewal time. That's the relationships that you need to build with your uh, partner and vendors. Oh, fantastic. Well, any further points to add on that, on that entire particular topic? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Great. All right, fantastic. Well, we'll leave it there. Okay, this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Um, so I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the panel for their time and uh, providing their insights. And thank you all for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in an up and coming podcast, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or my email is robert.wall at evolutionjobs.co.uk. And we will see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>